Today's podcast is brought to you by Horizons Resolve Adaptive Asset Allocation ETF, which trades on the Toronto Stock Exchange under the ticker symbol HRAA and is sub-advised by Resolve Asset Management. HRAA is an alternative fund whose investment objective is to seek long-term capital appreciation by investing directly or indirectly in major global asset classes, including, but not limited to, equity indices, fixed income indices, interest rates, commodities, and currencies. HRAA gains exposure to these asset classes by investing in derivative instruments that may include future contracts and forward agreements and securities. HRAA will take long or short positions, using up to a maximum of three times leverage in asset classes such as equity indices and fixed income asset classes, commodities, currencies, volatility indices, and other alternative asset classes. HRAA could provide balance to your portfolio by harnessing three unique investment styles. The first is an actively managed global risk parity portfolio to provide maximally diversified global exposure in optimal risk balance. The second is a proprietary systematic global macro process that attempts to profit from short-term market moves, going both long and short on more than 50 global markets. Finally, HRAA uses a dynamic tail protection overlay that attempts to profit from large moves in volatility markets. To learn more about this, please visit www.horizonsetfs.com HRAA to read about the ETF's investment objectives and important disclaimers about the risks associated with an investment in the ETF. Welcome to Gestalt University, hosted by the team of Resolve Asset Management, where evidence inspires confidence. This podcast will dig deep to uncover investment truths and life hacks you won't find in the mainstream media, covering topics that appeal to left-brain robots, right-brain poets, and everyone in between, all with the goal of helping you reach excellence. Welcome to the journey. Eric, welcome. Uh, Ladies and gentlemen, those who are joining us, we have uh, none other than Eric Baltunas. Put your hands together and welcome to the stage, the lovely Eric Baltunas. Eric, welcome. Thank you. I'm going to pretend I'm in an actual physical location with you guys, and there's a couple golf claps. So, yeah. <laughs> that sounds like a great idea. Absolutely. Good to be That's here. a good visual right there. Guys, so, uh, it's nice to talk to you. Yeah, you too. Yeah, thanks so, for joining us. And just before we get started, I should just say that uh, the podcast is for entertainment and informational purposes only. No investment advice is here, at least not yet. I love how when Mike's not here, you took over the compliance role. Right, I th- it's, I think it's not going to be you or Rod, so I it agree, might as well be yeah. me. That is Mike not going to be on? Mike's Mike's not on. No, he had he had other, another thing that he had. Was he fishing again? Ago. I wanted to bring up deep sea fishing because I'm really into it. We can and, all uh, absolutely chat about that. Having having okay. been out, you go. You're, I know you're in the Cayman now, right? Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Have you been since you got down there? Yeah, yeah. I went out uh, two weeks ago, five a.m. Caught the sunset at a twelve mile bank. Uh, roped a wahoo within like oh, the first five nice. minutes we hit, and then we kind of we kind of dragged around for a while. We hooked a a um, oh what was it? Something that you couldn't eat. I forget. Anyways, and or a barra, and like two hours later, and then we dragged around, and then we tried to to jig some tuna and, and didn't catch anything. But it was still a fantastic experience. Where, where have you been fishing? So my dad lives on the Gulf Coast uh, of, in Florida, right on the Panhandle. Yeah. And so it's uh, Gulf fishing. And there's lately we've been fishing all in the surf and you catch smaller stuff. But when he was a little younger and I would go down there in the late 90s and early 2000s, he was really into it. And he knew a guy who go went deep. And I went a bunch of times and we caught everything from 
the real dolphin, which is, I think, mahi-mahi, some people call it, but that kind of dolphin, uh, red snapper, grouper, which is so delicious. Yeah, right. Shark, uh, tuna, um, really everything. I mean, nothing was on limits. And the guy was relentless. He just wanted to catch. What happened, my dad got old, and then they also have limits more in Florida now for, like, right. catching fish. So it's not it, – We I caught a nice little – ripe time there um that was a fishing village and also that area's gotten so popular there's people everywhere and so it was nice to catch that it was really what awesome. town was that because we used to vacation there like twice a year down near sarasota but you were further up i guess yeah i'm not sure where sarasota is in relation to him but he's in destin or miramar mm-hmm. beach panama okay. city yeah yeah yeah. they do the mtv spring break sometimes for the yeah, sec totally. conference. yeah yeah it's basically like the jersey shore for the sec conference <laughs> that's the perfect perfect analog I there's like a lot that. of alabama lsu uh you know florida state all that yeah so so those would have been Florida absolutely Rebel. rocking parties man <laughs> <laughs> totally um which we probably shouldn't get into as married men so um just so everyone knows i'm sure sure eric's face is a lot more familiar than our own but eric is senior etf strategist at bloomberg and um can obviously talk about more than just etfs um for example, deep sea fishing, obviously. Um, so we're gonna we're gonna go all over the place today. But um, so you're you're in New York, right? And so New York is wide open. You're able to go out for dinner and stuff, and like restaurants are open. And how's that work? So I'm in Philly, which is oh, you're right. so that makes okay. So go, it's, yeah. they call it the sixth borough. That's how big <laughs> New York is. But um, no, I'm in Philly. It's uh, I'm going out to dinner tonight. I think it's 25 or 40 percent capacity. I, I'm not keeping up with it, but we are dining indoors tonight. Um, and uh, we're somewhat liberal with it but they closed restaurants for a bunch of months here but people are starting to go out a lot more now i think but in general um you know you can go out walk around jogging just wear a mask and you know um it's been i think like everywhere else i don't think philly's been that much different at the beginning i think there was some philly like hey, i am that word a mask there was de- we definitely are a little more like rebellious down here with like yeah. rules but everybody adjusted especially after that second wave hit yeah yeah for yeah. sure i think in in America has been a little bit more um, freewheeling about it than, for example, all of our um, uh, team members in Canada are, are basically in lockdown right now and, and haven't left the house other than to just sort of walk in the woods for two weeks and maybe go grocery shopping. So it's, uh, it's, it's about right, definitely yeah. different mindset. Um, yeah, my, my friend, my roommate from college, who was one of my best friends, still is, is in Toronto. And uh, I make it up there, I don't know, a couple times a year or used to for presentations happening ETF scene up there. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Well, well hey man, you know, we we're we're the progenitors of, of the ETF concept, as you know, and, and, and basketball. Yeah. Hey, that's right. Oh yeah. okay, wait. So when I go to Toronto now, you know how the, the Raptors beat the Sixers, which in that yeah, game, yes, in the first game. game. Yeah. yeah. It was probably one of the greatest endings ever. So congratulations, but it hurt so bad. Especially because I thought we were we had the momentum. Anyway, in when you go to the Toronto airport and you're about to fly back to Philly. I don't know if they did this on purpose, but in that terminal, they have this huge mural of the shot, right? <laughs> but the ball's only like a little bit off his hand. So I went up, took a picture, blocking the ball. <laughs> and now I opened my presentations with that in Toronto and I've been booed. That, but oh, it's really sure. that is brilliant. Yeah. And, and you don't even need to say what shot it was like that it was the shot that rang around the world. Like that was absolutely yeah. magnificent. Kawhi. But we should be able to take it with a little bit of more uh, sportsmanship, given that we actually won the championship. So 
you should be able to block it uh, in your own fantasy in world. It's just good natured booing. There's never any negative energy booing. It's all <laughs> yeah, just it's like, probably you know, it's only the yeah, Americans yeah. doing the block shot move. I don't know what's going on. <laughs> Can you yeah. guys hear me okay? Is my are my levels okay just before I blow anybody's eardrums off? It's, no, it's, it's pretty it's good. It's way better. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Good. Yeah. I need a very good shape. Um, so, um, so, so what, what are the, the hot topics in the ETF space right now? I guess ARK continues to, um, just blow the doors off. We saw the, the first major outflows this week, I guess, as part of this market, um, sort of mini reset type action we're seeing. Uh, has there been a lot of chatter about that? What, what you have any interesting takes on that? Yeah. I mean, for us, uh, if something punches above its weight or defies multiple odds, uh, we give it attention. We gave Jets, the airline ETF, a lot of attention for that. And most of the flows go to boring, you know, Vanguard. Like VTI takes in as much in a year as like ARC has in all assets ever. You know, it's um, – so we try to cover that, but you can only say so much. Okay, it's cheap beta, you know. So we do give outside attention to stuff that sort of emerges – and we were covering ARC early on. Uh, I remember I went back and looked. We covered them in like 2015, like three or four months after they came out because they immediately topped the leaderboard. And we, we, we thought they were interesting because they went across sectors. And um, it, 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 it's obvious in retrospect, but the idea of focusing on a theme that could just and be active and they could just hop wherever they want. I was like, you know, they're kind of onto something because at the time these companies were starting to be is Amazon, you know, consumer discretionary is, are, what, what are these companies? They're becoming so big and harder to find that it was an, actually a logical thesis, but she actually caught a wave, you know, and the way she caught it great. I mean, she caught every talk about fishing. I mean, she hooked this particular market and yeah. So the asset flows were minimal for four years. It's also a, a lesson in patience. I mean, this is not an overnight success story. I remember watching a VH1 behind the music on no doubt. Remember that band? Yeah, of course. Yeah. You no, know, I'm just a girl. And I just, in my mind, I thought they were like put together by a corporation and made famous like two days later, but they were a band for 12 years or something. And it was, and I remember that VH1 series taught that me that a lot, that a lot of these bands that maybe seem like what hit wonders, they actually have been a band for a long time. Not like keys is another one. Oh yeah. That had like eight records before that, yes. I, you know, I thought I was like deep, deep underground. And then when they went pop, I, I remember seeing them in concert at uh small venue in Toronto and realizing as their song was going number one, that that was possibly the last time they were going to be in that small venue. It yeah. That's crushing. a good time to catch a band. I think yeah. I actually met my wife at a black keys concert. It was our, oh, what was her first date? I should say. And, um, I remember her, her ringtone, <laughs> was James Blunt's here beautiful in line to get in with all these like hipsters with like hoodies on. I'm like, Oh man, they're going to throw us out. Um, and I was like, this date's probably not going to go well. Ended up getting married. So you never know. Uh, <laughs> but we had a good time. It was a good so show. It really didn't go well, I guess. Is that right? <laughs> <laughs> we, we had a similar one with my wife. We went to a concert and we we're first starting to get together and, uh, and it was a, mo- a most deaf concert and Drake opened up for him before Drake was anything. And so it was just me and her and then, you know, a bunch of like hardcore hip hop people. And my wife's like, oh, my God, is that Jimmy from Degrassi? That's wheelchair, wheelchair Jimmy from Degrassi. And I'm like, babe, please be quiet. This is like an up and coming artist. Yeah. You know, he's a rapper now. You can't call him yeah. uh, wheelchair Jimmy from Degrassi. Can we please? <laughs> anyway, I I, uh, I cut you off. So, yes, the, the idea of being a 10 year overnight success is, is kind of what we saw with Ark. Right. 
Yeah. And then um, it happens with hedge funds sometimes too, where they're just out there trying and trying and trying. And all of a sudden the fish start jumping in the boat and you hit this Malcolm Gladwell tipping point and she hit it and she made jets look like a minor thing in the level of assets. At one point she's taking in as much as BlackRock and this year her and BlackRock are, are tied. And so this is just a phenomenon. And the reason it's even extra interesting is because you can, it almost seems like you're watching someone on a high wire. Cause this is a very high level she's at. And, but with the, the performance and the flows, you know, she has a long way to go down and obviously that you can't take your eyes off it. So as a story, there's all different angles to cover. And um, it's, I would argue probably the biggest story or thing to cover in the last couple of years. And I remember writing about her back like two, three years ago. I wouldn't get much readership on the arc stories. Now it blows up. Um, you get a lot of, and that's why you're seeing more coverage. So those feed off each other. And with an open-ended ETF, I mean, your options are limited in order to try to manage the flow, right? If you have, an, if you have a hedge fund, you can say, okay, listen, we're not going to take any more assets in. We're going to close it down for now. The model you doesn't a bit work, more obscurity. The whole model no. works because they can take flows based on performance, right? So it's like this, it's the perfect accelerating feedback phenomenon, right? Small companies, large proportion of the float, huge flows relative to the size of the, of the proportional ownership, driving prices higher at an accelerating rate. Like it's, it's absolutely the perfect story that encapsulates this entire period in markets. <laughs> yeah. Well, it, in, in her defense, I will say this though. She didn't ask for these flows and she hmm. was doing the same thing for four years. I think if you, yeah, yeah. in her heart of heart, she'd probably want to be like a $10 billion fund. And, and probably I, there's no way you'd expect to be this famous or popular or big. And and I think that the flow story is fascinating and it's potentially a problem she's going to have to deal with. But, and it's also obviously helped her a little, there's a tailwind to Massively, the flow story. For sure. Yeah. yeah. And, but she's some guy on Twitter day was like, it almost seems like he's accusing her of buying stuff just because the flows would make it go up. And I don't believe that. I think she just buys stuff. She really believes in. I, I think she's in, she's in the right place. The flow story is out of her control, but something you have to be, now it's a new variable you have to consider if you're investing with her, for sure. Yeah, yeah, I mean, the money, the new, the new revenues that they that are going into her pocket must feel nice, but she must be terrified right now. I mean, I don't, like you said, it's a high wire act, right? What do you yeah. do? Uh, you you own large positions in very small companies, and uh, and you and everybody knows what you're doing because it's a it's a fully transparent ETF, right? I wonder if she could t- convert it. Uh, into uh, an active ETF to kind of give herself a little bit more room to to maneuver before everybody else knows what's going on. I guess she could. We had her on the podcast uh, before she blew up a couple times, and she kept saying, "Like, I just I want to be transparent. Like, and I want to. This is my blueprint. I don't want to hide my holdings." And she did, but it wasn't done so people would copy her and lift the prices of the stocks. Like, there wasn't a. I don't know, calculating hedge fund mindset in her, in my opinion, it was very innocent in, in mm-hmm. all of what she was doing. In retrospect, you could, you could see that if you had that mindset, this is a good idea, <laughs> but I don't think that was her mindset per se. And that's why I tend to try to defend her a little bit, but there's no denying some of these issues are now popping up with capacity, but I think a sell-off is probably going to ha- you know handle all this. Um, I think that I talked last time I talked to her on the phone, I interviewed her for this, this book I'm working on. And um, she was like, well, um, she, I, I could tell she was almost like, we'll have a big correction. Yeah. We're going to get smacked around and some people will, some of these le- like late coming performance chasers will leave. And I do think that her fund 
probably has a core base of maybe five or six billion true believers who will buy dips, uh, which I don't think she'll have a complete meltdown. I think you'll have a base, but I think there's probably half of the flows or people coming in because it went up. Um, and it's interesting. Remember when GameStop had that just dramatic increase uh, for a week? Not the yep, second. Never heard of it. Yeah, the, <laughs> GameStop won. Um, her flow, her flows stopped completely on a dime. It was like it was like it was very weird to me. Oh, and I know that's a really growth, interesting observation. Yeah, growth stocks were hit because GameStop almost acted like the VIX a little bit, and so that's p- p- part of it. But I honestly think that there was a shinier object in the universe for a week there, and that's how. Fickle, I think there's a layer of flows around her. And so I almost think she would be fine with those being shaken out in a drawdown. So I don't think she's, that's what I think she would say, instead of moving to a new structure, let's just let the market handle this. And she'll go back to her five-year time horizons and she'll say the stock she picks are supposed to grow and that all these new issues are coming out, which will help bring more options for public markets. Um, but yeah, I'm sure there is some degree of frustration that she has to deal with this other variable now. Well, I just saw a chart about how um, when you look at VWAP based flows, that at 78 bucks for the ARCQ ETF, 50% of people that own the fund will be underwater. Right. So basically, meaning that most of the, the flows, most of the people in the fund right oh, yeah, now yeah. Yeah. got like hit remember that, the, the peak. Yeah. I think it was MGI Global. I could, I think I may have gotten this slightly wrong, but I remember Bill Miller, right? He, in back in 2007, he was sort of the mutual fund manager of the decade, and he compounded at 18 percent a year. And I know Ark's been like some obscene multiple 60. of that, yeah, per, per year, um, which is which I think is just for more how many years? Five. Ark's done this five, six years. Six. Six. I think that's just more that the, the time and the liquidity environment and, and managing a public vehicle, like transparent vehicle is kind of amplified some of that. But anyways, notwithstanding my own opinions, I just think it, it, this so rings of the Bill Miller story. I remember everybody wanted an MGA, MGI Global and fully half of their flows came in 2007. And so even though the fund compounded at 18% a year for like 15 years or something, the average investor had negative performance because you know just the vast majority of the flows came in at the end right and it's uh it's one of these things we we talk about all the time like what is what is the mission is the mission to get um the maximum peak AUM and i'm not sure i'm not by the way i'm not disparaging um Kathy i don't know Kathy i haven't followed the story at all i'm i'm more just sort of interested in the the general strategy of it all but like the challenge with these with these types of stories or phenomena where you get this just incredible streak. You just catch, like you say, catch a wave. And I'm sure there's some skill and there's some, you know, strategy involved there, whatever, but you, whatever happens, you catch a wave and your performance is just so strong that you attract this mass amount of attention, mass amount of flows. And it inevitably means that so much of your, of your AUM comes in late and, and, you know, you just can't, you can't grow at 60% a year or you'll own the market in like 10 years, right? So like that's an unsustainable uh, growth rate. So, th- you know, reversion to the mean is really going to hurt the vast majority of the AUM in that fund. And, um, and there's well, it's just, also there's interesting no it. she's yeah, launching. Uh, sorry, go ahead, Derek. Well, uh, let me just say two things on that. One is you're right. There's history is littered with these hotshot superstars in Bogle's last book, or was it Clash of the Cultures? It was one of the two. He goes through like 10 funds that were exactly like this, Janus 20, even Fidelity. And, you know, they had their run and then they left. And 
the thing is, though, all, all those funds carry on. They still got a couple, you know, billions in dollars. Mm-hmm. So if you if they, they start out here and they end, they have this huge rush, and they they do end up ahead of where they were, and they are managing money. And it's, in a lot of cases, like Janice's, um, after the drawdown, and then you look at the hold, they did well. The question is, are, we know people aren't going to handle that act two where it's a drawdown, and that's ultimately a behavioral issue and why you know quant quants will always be in business <laughs> because people just do they just chase shiny objects it's just like human nature um yeah. it also reminds me of dxj remember the currency hedge dtf oh god yeah the, for japan yeah totally you remember that was a whole craze i mean it spawned all er, iShares had a whole suite of it like everybody who had currency hedge they started doing currency hedge minimum ball like they were combining like fads together and the whole thing had maybe 60, 70 billion. I think it might be down to 15 now. Like DXJ is 1.5 billion. That said, 1.5 billion for something like a currency hedge Japan isn't that bad. It's just that it had like 18 billion at one point. And I don't think Wisdom Tree meant harm either. And I think Kathy's just like, I remember she, she pitched Alliance Bernstein that she wanted to just do a, a concentrated fund with just the best innovative companies that she could find. And they said, no, maybe for the reasons that you're mentioning, but. Ultimately, she could finally do it over here, but I don't think it was malicious. But certainly, if you are going that direction, you almost, almost like you should have a warning label that this this could go really well or really bad. It's basically home run swinging. It's like Babe Ruth style active. Yeah, but I I don't again I, I don't want to imply any nefarious intent for for um cat for Kathy. Um, you know I think I think part of it's right place, right time. Part of it's I'm sure there's some skill and strategy there as well. I do also want to credit Vixologist who who corrected me. It was Ken Hebner, CGM Focus, not um, Bill Miller. So yeah, sorry, brain fart there. Totally right. Um, but um, I, I just, I, I think oh, there CGM, is- Oh, you're talking about the CGM Focus? Yeah, CGM Focus okay. one. Exactly. This is the very, I, you're, it's very uh, good of you to pick on. We actually did a note where we looked at this one and it's the similarities are eerie. It literally the nine hundred percent markup, same exact thing. But then it went down, and it got like eight billion at the peak. Then it went down fifty percent in two thousand eight, so more than the market. And it lost half of those assets, but then it lost the rest over the years. Yeah, right. Like, I don't know four hundred million today, but lifetime it's beaten the market. Right, yeah, but, but but not for the. <laughs> I mean, he did his right? job. He just he just took like the the hair instead of the tortoise route, I guess. This is the time-weighted returns versus the dollar-weighted returns, right, of, of, of funds. And um, I mean, it's just, again, it's just such a perfect fable lesson, right, for investors, right? Like the, the historical performance that you see is not the performance you're going to get because your performance is, is, is path-dependent upon when you enter, right? And so just shifting gears a little bit, I'm just wondering whether you think the um, – the structure, like the choice that Kathy made, whether it was intentional or not, to to remain this sort of transparent vehicle rather than taking advantage of some of the um, obfuscation that is available under the sort of active ETF structure. How do you think that has either intentionally or un- unintentionally contributed to the effect she's had, the halo effect, the the attention? And, and obviously the performance. It's a good question. And I mean, it, the big variable is uh, probably not realizing your growth would be that parabolic when you set out on these plans. But again, before the growth, I she just thought the ETF was a disruptive vehicle itself. And she's all about disruption. So it fit her mindset, first of all. And she was well aware that this was a where most of the flows were going and, and whatnot. 
Um, and she, I think she felt that she wanted to be on that side, that growth area, uh, product-wise. Um, the idea that she would show her holdings, she had no problem with that. I remember she was like, you know, I don't care. And she also, I, I think it was something like, if people know, she just was fine with that. I don't know if she thought of it in the terms of like, oh, you can follow me now. And like, because there is some degree of like, and marketing where it's like you can get into my world and follow what I do. I don't know if that was exactly her goal. I don't recall her saying that specifically, but it certainly helped build an ecosystem around her yeah. because now you can like, okay, why'd she buy this? I know now it's a flow issue and it arguably is much more technical, but at the beginning, I think people just got into her thing. They could follow her trades. Oh, why is she buying this? They could ask her questions. She has the summit every year. Um, and I, we thought that was a decent blueprint for active. The flow issue complicates it a little. So I, she again, did it too well. Yeah, and the, the, that the active non-transparent ETFs are coming out. They have, they they almost seem. The problem with not showing your holdings is fine, and it probably would help them if they hit a home run. But I just don't think they're going to get many bites doing something that's like low tracking error, but like a high fee. I think that's a that's a middle ground that's just not seeing a lot of action. I think most of the flows go to literal beta for like nothing mm-hmm. or something that just moves a lot. And I, I guess maybe investors are like, I got the beta covered. Let me put some hot sauce on the plate here. And now and I'll have fun with this and it will take my mind off the boring part of the 80% with all the cheap beta. And potentially that's made the middle a tougher it, it's sort of it's barbelled. It right, seems that makes sense. Would you be able to kind of keep most of the holdings under these new rules public, but then keep, I don't know, 10 to 20% of it sort of uh, hidden, shrouded in a way that she could then hedge part of it? I mean, she would still accomplish a large portion of what you're describing was her uh, original motivation, but then also kind of protect against some of the beta because this thing has gotten much bigger than she, she than her. I mean, it, it, it's delayed. part of this. You know, like delay, delay the, right. the it, transactions. It, yeah, um, well... I, She's in a transparent structure. I don't. Uh, the one thing she can do, I believe, she can do cash in lieu. If there's some stock that's just you does not want to um, pump money into, she can accept cash, so they don't have to go buy it, and then she can deploy that cash how she wants. Being active mm-hmm. helpful. If she was passive, like the way the S and P rebalanced into Tesla and everybody knew it, I mean, that lost a lot of money for index and bad. And that was just a so obvious front running trade right there, and it worked easily because the index is like dumb; it has to do it. She can like make decisions and we have noticed she's putting more big cap names like Lockheed Martin and Google in where they're like almost like the way a high yield manager would use HYG. They keep beta to that theme, but then they're cash management um, uh, facilitators. And so she could do that, but that would ultimately make her active share lower to the S and P drift her up into large caps and maybe take a little of her edge off. So that would probably be the price she'll have to pay over the next couple of years, if nothing calms down, she'll probably have to just start finding good large caps. To- yeah, what's crazy is that she's got she's created her own gravitational pull. Even even with the obscurity, she announces that she's going to do a space oriented ETF, and the big <laughs> space names are up ten percent that day. Right? That's crazy. She like she's already getting front run by simply announcing that there's going to be another product coming out. That was when we knew this was like. This was rock star level. I mean, mm-hmm. only Buffett can do that. Like maybe Gunlock a little bit. Sometimes Gunlock would give his picks and we'd see a bump in that. He goes by, by EM and short SPY and we see flows in EM. I mean, there's only like 
you know, five people, maybe. Well, don't Powell. forget deep fucking Elon. Well, deep, yeah, Elon. Deep Elon. Well, Elon's the ultimate. I mean, <laughs> he's like literally God over the market. Him, I don't know who has more power, Powell or Elon. It's it's close, right? It depends what on the hedge day. Eye? Yeah. I think in terms of of like day to day, you know, dispersion within the market. I think Keith McCullough has the box at the moment. On. <laughs> Is he? I mean, you think just, he's actually? It's just unbelievable. Like I talk to all these people who are really, you know, sort of just in, just getting into markets the last two or three years, That's and true. just worship the altar of of Hedgeye and Keith McCullough. Man, I, mean, I know who he is, and like in a way, he kind of has the same vibe as Kathy, and he's open. So here's Agreed. what we're thinking, and bringing people into the universe. There's people who want to have fun, they want to gamble, and they want to get into trading, and. They're making they're almost like uh, gurus that are able to bring in a cult following to a degree. He gives um, them the framework, right? I mean, at the end of the day, that's what people who yeah. want to be in this market, which kind of begs the question. And I wanted to kind of ask you, uh, you're definitely seeing a lot of flows and the hype. But did you overlay that to some degree with kind of like a top down macro framework in order to, to kind of get your picks as you think about the space? Obviously, the flows uh, are a big portion of it, but do you, do you, do you pair that to some degree with a global view? Um, are you asking me just my general global view of the markets or if the flows are sh- telling us that people are um, doing more top-down investing instead of bottom-up? Well, I think the former, but uh, however you want to take it, you can take it in both directions if you want. Yeah. I mean, I'm one of these people who would have thought the market would have corrected like a hundred percent ago. And so then now I just don't even stop thinking about you're it. The right, you're with your people, dude. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> I mean, that's the thing with all these pushbacks and even the arc people were doing football spike because they had a day of outflows. I'm like, listen, anybody who's tried to spike the football too early on anything that's bearish has just looked like an idiot. Um, so I'm, I just take it, eat, you know, deep breath. I, you know, with as long as it seems to me, as long as the market thinks the Fed is got its back, these things are usually short hiccups. It's almost like the Fed is one giant painkiller. And so you don't feel much. And it, that's the big thing for me. I just think is if you had, I don't know, if Powell was replaced, then you got a more hawkish Fed. That to me, that's when this sort of you lose the medicine. And uh, I think some interesting things could happen. I, I honestly, because I poll people like, do you think that the March sell off? And I, I'd like to hear your guys' question on this. You know, in March, the market went down. What was it like? 25%. 35, right? Yeah. Now, let's just say that the Fed did not act. It just said, you know what? You're on your own. Now, since March, the S&P is up. I'll tell you the answer. And then you tell me what you think it would be up had the Fed done nothing. I I think we'd be eating dog food or, you know, like um, all sort of farming our own vegetables and trying to check, catch chickens and stuff for, for food. <laughs> Now, now. Oh my God. All right. Well, I have a different Sorry, answer than there that. Is, there is no bid, dude. There's and there's there's no bid other than the Fed under this market. This like, is where the value this is where the value guys would have replaced. There's no value the Fed. guys left. There's zero yeah, AUM in value. Period. You kidding me? Like, most investors are are disgruntled value investors that have been pounded to the payment. That vast majority of investors are continuing dude, the to be value. At the margin, you have like a, you're out of your mind. No, there would have been a bid. It just wouldn't have been From a V recovery in the same way. No, well, the there was a global the collateral part. call, dude. If there's nobody out there to provide collateral, then there was a global collateral call. 
all the entire market would have been dictated by margin calls. And we like, this is the Mike Green thesis playing out in real time without a backstop. We are so massively under collateralized as a, as a system that if there's a global collateral call and there isn't somebody there to provide, you know, last, last mile uh, liquidity, then this whole thing goes to zero. We okay, well, reset. the Fed didn't come in. The banks, there's there's always a backstop. It just may not Fiscal. have been the Fed. It might have been Fiscal an 80% drop. But, you know, dog I food mean, and whatever else you said is a little <laughs> optimistic, even for you, my friend. Rod, you weren't here for the, uh, we were actually said this is for entertainment purposes as well. I think Adam's just taking that to heart. He didn't mean it. Just let's move on. But How I think it's interesting. He needs it deep in his soul. My, my assertion, dude. I can I, see. The, the the Fed is a uh, bono. This happens when I talk to people. I'll have one smart person say, "No, this is just markets. Fed or no Fed, this would have." Ha-. And then I'll have someone else go, "No, absolutely." And I, the one thing I would say is, I think people are discounting putting a floor on that particular moment in time because I remember active mutual funds, especially on the fixed income side, had just seen ninety billion dollars in a week, and Pimco income fund was down twelve percent in a in like half a month or something. And at some point you saw the ETF discounts. There was no liquidity. These funds were see we're going to have to unload bonds to who? And then exactly. they were going to have to halt redemptions. And then there had been a run on mutual funds. It, that's the downward spiral. I think the fed stopped and ultimately I'm more on the dog food side, but I certainly don't think it would be up 73%. I think at some point after the dog food was served, there would have natural bids would have come in. But I still think we'd be down like thirty percent or something. That's my yeah, yeah, hundred percent. That's yeah, down, see, that's down a reasonable answer. You'd be eating dog food because you're rally. depressed, but you can still afford the dog food. Right? <laughs> but by the way, Mike Green will have some value. Mike Green and I were, you know, I, I talked to him all the time. We used to, you know, he, he. I love talking to him. I know what you're saying. My different on Mike Green scenario is that what I saw in March was that the problem's going to come from active mutual funds. Because that's the demographic that's going to bail the soonest. So they're going to be the sellers. If anything, passive could provide a backstop because all those people do is keep investing. They're taught to just keep buying. And if anything, they could put some floor on the bottom. It's in 30 years after all the active funds go away and there's just passive that I think Mike Green's scenario will come through where all the Vanguard investors leave who can be me at 65. But I don't think we got to get through the active mutual funds first, in my opinion. And we saw that in March. Passive saw inflows. Active had uh, 500 know, It depends on the active manager, right? Like, again, no, no, I go no, back not, to value. Value, value, value guys are buying. Value guys are buying. So there might be I'm a, not sure a, a value, period by which. It depends. If that active value mutual fund saw inflows, sure. But the net outflows of active mutual funds was $350 billion during that three-week period. That is a lot of money. Oh, and I'm not talking about a value factor fund. I'm talking about actual, legitimate guys that have been sitting on cash for a, but a decade. I think Eric's talking the about world. the liability of those funds. So it's it's the I think his his thesis is more the generational, the boomers who are if the boomers are funds. 70, they're not going to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If if that market were to unwind more, they're like, I got to get out of here. Sure. And so they're they don't have the time on their side. And I don't think their loyalty to active mutual funds was tr- tr- that high in, in addition. The people who got into Vanguard sought out Vanguard or these RIAs who like saw the light. And they're v- much better. Hey, we see it every sell-off. So I just think those people need another 30 years to become old and 
and, and want to get out before it's too late. I think, I just think active mutual funds are going to be the first wave of the sort of liquidity problem um, that is spoken about. I don't think the, I don't think Vanguard or again, I just think they're very disciplined. They're taught to keep buying and they're also younger. And that, I think so, that, all, that, that matters. So, so it's not the value guys and whether they buy value stocks, it's more their investors and whether they stay in the fund or not, because in a sell-off like March, value is down too, right? So you might have just too much outflow pullage to really do much. The yeah. challenge so, so- is in a world, I'm going to just come right in over the top. Um, the, the challenge is in a world like this Slam with it. such low rates and everybody looking to every dark corner of the markets to generate some sort of excess return or some sort of spread on yields that there is a, there's a lot, there's like a, there's orders of magnitude more leverage in the system than anybody would care to admit. And it's, I, I hear you saying that the boomers behaviorally and, and probably for, for rational reasons, given that their actual, the duration on their liabilities is actually is low and, and shrinking that at the margin that they will also end up being a net seller at a certain point just to like preserve their way of life. But I, I think in, in these acute crisis scenarios, it's, it's less the sort of typical investor making, making quasi rational or even emotional decisions about their wealth. And it's more to structural leverage in the system that needs to issue. be unwound a, in, right. that, in that's different, market yeah. neutral in, in, you know, CTAs in, in risk parity and whatever, wherever the leverage exists in these, in structured uh, credit, all of this is such a massive amount of credit in the system that needs to be, that, that's essentially VAR managed and needs to be all unwound at the same time. And, and that is the dynamic that the Fed, it's a, it's a bank run on the global collateral system and the Fed steps in to be the, the pro- provider of collateral of last resort. And, and if the Fed doesn't step in in those situations, the 7% um, discount to NAV that we observed in TLT, TLT yeah. Yeah. on, on yeah. February 24th or whatever it was, would have grown to 30% or 80% or something just because there's literally no buyers. There's yeah. no... No yeah. one's accepting repo. No one's accepting collateral from on the run treasuries. There's literally no one with any collateral left to to borrow to buy. And I can just see Warren Buffett backing up the truck. Um, he does I, have I, I agree. I think it's. Cash or I think it's degrees, one. right? So I agree that it would have been much, much worse. I don't think we go to zero. And I, I also think we're in fantasy land. The Fed will always step in. And now, I mean, we saw how quickly they stepped in in contrast to 2008. So they have. Their guns are blazing, man. They're going to keep on there's, doing this every single time. I sometimes think, though, what if like a, Rand, like a you know, Ron Paul's son, Rand Paul, like there's, Ron Paul was like, I got to get rid of the Fed. Like he, he had a decent following. Like he could have been, pre- like if one of these guys, I mean, I don't think Bernie was too hot on the Fed. If one of these guys gets in, that's like major populist, then he feels like the Fed just enriched all the rich people. That it, he could just install a, a hawkish Fed governor. Sure. I think that's the... Yes. Black Swan event that would change your situation. I agree. I had my my eight year old was wearing "End the Fed" t shirts. <laughs> your eight year old in 2010. Was this from osmosis or did you actually she like was five, I guess, iron them in? 
And no, no, everybody can, has yeah, to wear these T-shirts. You could order and the Fed pink and the Fed T-shirts for five-year-olds back in 2010, 2011. It was absolutely. But I had like all my 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 five-year-old and my three-year-old pink and blue, you know, and the Fed shirts walking around in the strollers. <laughs> love you. God, the other, love you, the other scenario is uh, the market itself taking <laughs> the printing press away from the Fed. I mean, at the end of the day, uh, uh, the Fed losing its 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 credibility in in backstopping. I mean, to some degree, what we're seeing now is uh, inflation expectations coming up, and uh, uh, people uh, concerned about rates, which is why the curve is steepening. But at at one point or another, you might imagine that the other black swan would be just the the the, the Fed coming in with this pro- this promise and market shrugging at them and saying, you know what, no, we're not playing this game anymore. And, and, and moving out into other uh, areas of the market, Europe, emerging markets, like not wanting to touch U.S. sovereigns. Yeah, I mean, remember in March, the Fed did a couple half-hearted attempts and the market shrugged it off. But then they did what you know we call kitchen sink day, March 23rd, 2020, we'll live in infamy. And that did it. Um, I guess literally buying ETFs and bonds was like, okay, well, wait, there's a buyer. Um, and... Look, Japan, I mean, we, we watched Bank of Japan. They own 75% of all ETFs there. Now, I think that only adds up to about 5 or 6% of the stock market. It's ETFs are a small fraction small of the total portion. stocks. But um, the fact is, um, they're just, I think, comfortable living that life. And they're gonna, it's going to go to 6%, 7%. And ultimately, you get to a point where you're kind of like a country like India, where it's socialized. <laughs> but India is actually divesting and wanting to go more towards the way we were and let animal spirits take over in capitalism. So they're using ETFs to get out of stock. So it's interesting, Bank of Japan and India are two different paths. We're almost, I put us in the middle somewhere. Um, so what goes through the Indian right model? What are they doing? So the, the, bank of, the Bank of Japan, sorry, the Bank of India <clears throat> owns, already owns a lot of yes. equities or equity ETFs. They own a lot of companies in India. And so what they've done, they set up uh, ETFs that the Indian government basically says, um, if you buy this ETF, we're basically the seller of the stocks in it. And so you will, anybody buying the ETF just gets, we're just getting rid of the stocks through the ETF. And then the ETF just goes lives on the India exchange for, for whatever. And it's funny, the ETFs have done pretty well, like some of the, because there was a lot of buyers. So the Indian government, we wrote, we wrote a piece once about how they were outperforming the market and, uh, it it since changed. And also in the Bank of Japan, there's an interesting one there. And I was think the Fed should do this. If they ever go to buy equities, the Bank of Japan was like, we keep buying these stocks that just do buybacks, which is maybe not the – we want them to do CapEx, right? So they had iShares, BlackRock, design ETFs that uh, tilted towards CapEx and companies that hired. Uh, they looked at you know hiring and capital expenditures and – it's called the human capital ETF. And that became a tool in the Bank of Japan's toolkit, which to me would be if a twofer. A, you lift the equity prices and you, you at least get some of that money down to the economy as opposed to the buyback situation. Fiscal policy via the capital markets. That's actually really clever. Very <laughs> interesting. Yeah. And BlackRock work with the BlackRock is very like, <laughs> they're everywhere, oh, yeah. man. <laughs> they are commercial. They're not messing yeah. around. No, no, for that's sure. An, that's an interesting view. So what are you seeing in terms of active ETFs versus passive ETFs in the last year? I, I always, you know, we, we've always seen these flows out of active into, into passive, but now with the new rules, 
are we seeing a shift in the ratio between those two, especially if there were a bunch of active uh, funds that actually did fairly well during the crash? What are you seeing out there? Um, okay, so there's active to passive and there's ETF to mutual fund. And those get confused in the press all the time. Because yeah. somebody like the mutual fund's dead. Well, no, Vanguard has like trillions in index mutual funds. <clears throat> Not only that, there's trillions in regular active mutual funds. The market return has been so good. Listen, listen to this stat. I, this stat blows me away. And active equity mutual funds had $3 trillion 10 years ago. They have $6 trillion today, but they've seen $2.3 trillion of outflows. Think about that. Yeah, Isn't that yeah. crazy? That's, what other business does that – could you lose like 80% and still be twice the size? So we consider those mirage assets that will fall, like basically tumble very quickly in a bear market. So we think the market share of passive will grow quicker and it'd be expedited. If you took the market return away, passive would be 80% of mutual funds right now. But the market return has been a great buffer. Um, anyway, in the ETF side, active has done better than it has in the past. We have this chart called the cost obsession barometer, where we track the percentage of flows that are going into products that charge less than 20 basis points. That means cheap beta. It got up to 99% two years ago in 2019. It's now been slashed down. I think it might last I checked, it was like 70, 70%. The, the shiny object lane is grown big. That's Kathy, that's themes, that's ESG, and that's mm. too active. Um, there's been like, but the middle of the road active, like the Davises and the Ants, the active non-transparents, they, they haven't really done much. I mean, all active non-transparents combined, there's probably like 15 of them now and they're a year old, have about a billion. And I would say probably only 300 million of that is true organic flows. So 300 million, um, ARC would do that in an afternoon. That's how little traction the middle has gotten and why we, uh, our theme is bifurcation, you know, barbelling. And so when you say active, I would say that there's active and we consider it like new active, which is like what quants do rules based smart beta, right? So it's active, but you're using an index. Um, and then there's things like, uh, ESG to me is active. Uh, and then themes are very active. And it's interesting, my colleague, and I'd love to get your opinion on this. My colleague, Tom, wrote a note looking at how, like, when it comes to value, investors are like, okay, I get value, I'm going to buy a value fund. But momentum, for whatever reason, retail investors just, I don't know if they don't understand it or the word's too scary, but what they will buy, they'll buy funds doing momentum, <laughs> but they won't necessarily buy momentum funds. So like we think that themes in particular have come around and really just stolen the thunder from a part of the quant world, namely momentum close to a little bit. And so it's an interesting battle within the active lane between all these different things that and the labels they put on it. But a lot of it's just growth and momentum by different names. And it's interesting yeah. to us. And I think it could probably frustrating to the rooted academic momentum that is rooted in all this evidence and and then you got this theme etf comes along that does like you know whatever and you know future tech <laughs> well, and look, it gets man, a billion dollars this is my point everybody's a closet value investor they can't even admit it when they're buying momentum right that everybody wants to feel like they're buying a, a deep value company that's actually uh, making a difference and, and creating something real like tesla right like that is for a lot of people a deep value play that no that misunderstood deep value play and they'll never call it a momentum strategy right we used to pitch we used to be asked to pitch the university university of toronto fund 
years ago. And we did a lot of momentum stuff back then. And they just, the, the quant team was like, this is amazing. This is like really solid work. It makes sense. We are never going to be able to invest this because yeah, the, the board is, is, a, is an ex investment banker, and there's no yeah. way he's going to invest. No in, way. He in, needs in to understand. Sort of momentum strategy. Yeah. Yeah, so I mean, it's, it's, momentum it's in our nature. Future. I mean, momentum's done very well. A lot of the funds are up 40, 50%. Um, now, Kathy doubling that return makes it that she, again, it's taking a lot of the attention away, but. There's theme ETFs that are up, you know, addition, you know, con, con, consistent with momentum, and some of them overlap really well. I mean, there you can tell they're. And now I think what's going to happen is instead, if value comes back, watch the theme people try to steal that thunder too. I just saw filing for a airlines, cruises, and hotels, and that's value, right? So you can see people put like names on what would be value, and so there's this interesting coming collision between quants and themes. I think. That's one, but then traditional act, and that's going to be more for things that can uh, outperform uh, and you'd put on top of your cheap beta. And then there's traditional stock picking, which is a very tough world. I'm not sure there's much going on there beyond if you're going to do Babe Ruth and go swing for the fences. That said, there's probably a lot, there's so much assets that you're not hurting at all. I mean, you're very comfortable, like the six trillion. So that's why I think you've seen much more griping or either like layoffs from that side of the world because there is their revenue and assets are almost as high as they've ever been. Um, but they have organic growth problems. And so you probably see a lot of consolidation over there, but the innovation and the flows are going to go to some of the stuff we just talked about, but the, that theme quant versus theme. And I put Kathy in there in themes. I agree. Um, those are going to battle over some of the assets from advisors and retail. I think institutions, I think are, knowledgeable enough to know that's just labels and go for the academic stuff. I don't know. You guys have any opinion on that? Our observation typically is that the institutions are not always <laughs> that different in their decision-making process from, from um, many of the more experienced retail investors. So I'm, I'm not sure. We, we used to think that we could have a clear separation and it's blurred over the years. We've got some really sophisticated um, individual investors and family offices that um, that challenge us in really cool ways and and make us better, and institutions that end up really just being hurting and and um, more concerned with with peer review than um, any sort of innovation. And it's um, so it's 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 I, I think that that uh, designation is kind of is kind of blurry. But uh, the, the the whole theme thing fascinates me beyond all, all it's causing momentum right because whatever's working loads on momentum right Mo- momentum is is the but underlying the theme creates the, the momentum well, right exactly let me, let me, so let me it's narrative based let me connect the dots there because i think it's like it's like i believe something like something something i have a bias and then my bias starts to work and then you're like, oh my God, my this bias is absolutely you, know, you, don't, you don't think it's a bias. You think it's like this is the yeah. way the world works, or this is like a manifestation of of God's values. And you're like, okay, yes, this is exactly the way things go. And and the capital starts to flow there. And you're like, oh yes, this is. And so you you know you're all in on this theme, right? And it's the the momentum guys are like. Yeah, you know, we actually don't have any stories and we don't care about themes and we don't whatever, but we we love that you care about themes because um <laughs> that's how we're going to drive these our, inefficiencies. Exactly. We're going to Well, was it Ryan Curlin was like we should something like we should start advertising like we're we're whatever theme is working. Like we're a greatest hits of themes. Like 
we're just going to theme for you. And I know he's joking, but there is something to communicating in a new way about what momentum is. I think momentum in particular, I do, you know, a lot of these TV hits and I talk to analysts and even people inside like the financial bubble get confused momentum. And it's almost counterproductive because you think performance chasing is bad, but here it's good. And trend following is in the same boat. But um, I think that's, for some reason, value is so much more easy to lock into for people. It's because you, you, it's it's based on balance sheet data, right? It's it's not yeah. it's momentum is purely factor. it's wait you're telling me your process is to look at price and as price changes you do more of the thing that it just did. What about what about the price to earnings and meeting the management and understanding the underlying? No, it doesn't. Would it you doesn't walk into matter, a store? Right? And if they and you looked at something, it was fifty dollars, and then it went to sixty dollars. You'd buy more of it. Right. Like it's just so counterintuitive. Whereas that's the Colin Roche uh, joke about uh, the market is the only uh, venue out there that where demand increases as price rush out of the store when there's a fifty (laughs) percent off sale. Yeah, and they'll keep piling in as prices go up. Yeah, it's really interesting. I think there's like this historical bias that the intelligent investor like Ben Grant's thesis is all about you know you buy something cheap you wait for it to converge so I think the fa- uh, value is the more intuitive of all the factors because it's the easiest one for you to get behind who doesn't why who doesn't want to buy something that's cheaper than it's worth and Dude, at the end of the I day I buy things for f- I buy dollars for 50 cents <laughs> <laughs> I mean um, exactly there's this um who doesn't this, want this, that? this ETF with the ticker dude it's um the sector is due to abide. Yeah, do you know this guy? It's, he this ticker is through Alpha Architect, a white label, but um, it's the Merlin AI. Anyway, the idea yeah, of calling yeah, himself a surfer again, I think you're going to see a lot of attempts to re-label momentum and to because surfing is somewhat of a decent analogy. You're riding the wave, you're getting off before it hits the shore, and I used to compare it to almost like being a chameleon, and you're just sort of going to go with this crowd, then you're going to bail before they go off the cliff. And I don't know, there's just probably some it, opening for some interesting communications, I, I think. But but I would I would say the quants, I think, um, have a formidable opponent in the theme people. For sure. I, I agree. I think that there's never more momentum than the last 15% of a theme move. I mean, Bitcoin is another one that we haven't even started talking about, right? Oh yeah. That's, What's going to happen totally there? How many how many ETFs are launching in the US right now? Uh, how many are uh, listed? So there's it's nobody has a 19B4 in yet. So there is no technical ones on the clock. That said, oh. there was I think 17 filed at one point before the SEC told them all to stop. So to make a long story short, I believe there's probably 15 issuers that are interested in watching and hoping to get out first. I think there you got about 15. I equate it to the cannonball run, that movie from the eighties where they go from New York to LA and whoever gets there first gets like a million dollars and they all have little tweaks to how they're going to do it. One's an ambulance. One's like uh, justice priests. Cause you can tell from the perspective is some will add this, take this away. <laughs> some file first, some have better lawyers. They're all trying because whoever's out first, if they approve one, they're going to be rich for life. I mean, the SEC is in the role of kingmaker now. It would, didn't have to be like this. I think if they approved the Winklevoss and the, the first couple, the Winklevoss, by the way, they filed in 2013, and Bitcoin was 
that's how far ahead of the curve they were. And dude, did we just jump the shark? Let's hashtag crypto here. Like we're now, okay, we're, we're here. I was hoping we would get here. Okay, keep going. Yeah, I mean, um, so I would say in a year, if the SEC like you know gets their gets gets you know evolves mentally fast enough, which I think they should, you could see ten Bitcoin ETFs easily. The floodgates will pile open. The question is, do they prove five at once to give some level playing field, or do they let like one out first? Because whoever they let out first, it's like they're born on third base, and everyone yeah. else has to start at home plate. And that's a we saw it in Canada. The one the one had a twenty four hour lead and has like ninety five percent of the assets and volume. It's crazy. You know, we know the story. We know the the principles of the one that came in second, and it's a brutal. Like nobody knew it was coming. It just they just it take a decade. They jumped ahead of the line. It was a nice opportunity where everyone was selling the closed end fund and buying the ETF, yeah. and so the closed end was fund down. was trading it like a fifteen percent discount to, to yeah. have. <laughs> and the closed end fund is going to convert into an active ETF, so you could like exactly. I don't know what it's at now. It probably still has a discount if there's that's a good trade. Like this is not no trading advice. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah. Let's see what it closed at. I think it's somebody knew how to eleven percent. What the eleven and it's way more than the fees. What's so the discount? 11%. 11%. Yeah. 11%. So you can get, you right now, you you can buy that, wait for it to become an open-ended fund, get NAV. You can, you can buy Bitcoin at a discount. It's amazing. And it's because of this purpose, right, was the fund. Yeah. So yeah do you guys safe. know them? You're from Canada. Like, how yeah, do they do we, it? We know Sam pretty well, yeah. We know, we how, know, how some, we know some it? stuff. I bet he's we got can't, We like, can't say half of those issuers that I just mentioned in the cannonball run to be like, how'd you do it, dude? <laughs> is, it, yeah. is, it, is cannonball? No, run, well, is let's take that conversation offline. <laughs> Burt Reynolds. Close. Oh, Burt Reynolds. Burt yeah. Reynolds. Exactly. Yeah. And that actually had Dean Martin and Sammy Davis Jr. where they were the priests. Remember that? Wow. If you, if you yeah. go back and watch it, it's a, like an eighties comedy. Like, Oh yeah. No, I've seen that one. Yeah. Very light yeah. and funny. I yeah. thought that's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. But look, totally. yeah, there's there's certainly I mean, Canada is a small market. Right. And and people think that we're, you know, types of people that play by the rules all the time and are very nice. But in the capital market space, if you know the right people, because it's a small community, you know, it's it's really about relationships. So I, I wonder if, you know, this is a question. We got five ETFs applying in the United States. You want to know who I think? I think you put a you you put a poll out. And I, I voted, yeah, and I voted that it's all about relationships. I've seen it yeah. happen over and over and over again. Um, lawyers and money was a close second, mm-hmm. though. <laughs> right. But that said, if you hire a lawyer who used to work at the SEC. That's, that's, that's yeah. relationships. That's ding, relationships. Ding, 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 ding. So Interaction effect that, right yeah. there. To, yeah, you're conflating two variables. You're offside. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah so. I'd be curious but, to know when that happens, what's going to happen to Bitcoin, right? Because these guys have to come in and buy it's like it's like Kathy and the uh, space ETF, right? She's not even buying it yet, and it's totally. already popped. How much is going to pop because of the anticipation of the ETFs, and how much is going to pop once the ETFs go live? Yeah, I think the um, the Canada Bitcoin ETF though came out, and Bitcoin has had a rough week. So we don't like. I I used to think if it was back in 2014, Bitcoin would have popped major. But there's a lot else going on. Like Elon could just say it's overvalued that day. And all of a sudden that over, overwhelms the ETF issue. Uh, there could be something else. So Bitcoin's so big now that I, I don't know if it's a guarantee. It should help overall, though. But this week, uh, Bitcoin's down heavily and the ETF came out. Um, so I'm not sure. But the, back to the arc in the space, 
I can't tell you how uh, weird that was. Like UFO is this, and I guess no Andrew Chanin, he put out hack. Then he got in a fight with the issuer and he kind of got a raw deal. So he comes out with UFO and it, it doesn't really go anywhere, but he got like this nice sort of gift from God in that our arc is filing a space ETF. He goes from 30 million to 140 million in like two weeks. Come on. Just, just, <laughs> just because you want uh, exposure to space in the three months before the arc ETF <laughs> launches and it went on a nice performance run. Awesome. And I've never seen a filing that literally made it, you know, made another ETF's career. That is, it's unprecedented. That said, he might see some drain when she launches in April. How much pause does this kind of price insensitive buying give you? I mean, we're, we're back again to the Mike Green thesis. It seems like he's uh, he's top of uh, topics a lot of the oh, times. He's omnipresent, but re- dude. He's omnipresent, absolutely. But uh what, like, what do you think about it, Eric? No, no, just, just this idea of how, how how much of this price insensitive buying that you see from the index tracking passive vehicles and, and what that has done to the market itself. I mean, it, it is the uh, divorce from fundamentals uh, notion that I think a lot of people are, are, are thinking about. But what is the solution at this point or where are we headed? So uh, we we would say 20 percent of the market stock market is owned by. Uh, passive mutual funds or ETFs. And then maybe add on another 10% for SMAs that you can't see, maybe another 5% for CITs. So you get to 35%, right? And of that 35%, though, I think only half is like true data. There's all other weird stuff going on. And there's, like we said, a lot of active that's passive, grouped as passive. So it's not all just like one homogenous blob, but there's probably, I don't know, 15% that's a homogenous blob. And sure, that's the money that drips into Vanguard. But if you removed Vanguard and you put them all into Fidelity's funds, they'd be buying the same stuff. I mean, it's really more the tyranny of the index. Um, the S&P ultimately is dictating it. And this is our, our uh, theme that we write about sometimes called the beta vortex, which is that it's not necessarily an index fund or passive, but it's just so many things revolve around the S&P now that it sort of sucks in it return and money. And then the return makes more money come in. And yeah, I think there is a sort of upward spiral that it creates. That said, the uh, price distortions, I think, are overrated. I think the GameStop is is the situation you got to watch for. Because if you have a stock that has a low float and it's not big, and and you have passive owners you know are not going to sell GameStop based on what Reddit does. They're not moving. You could have stocks become targeted. But they, you cannot target Apple this way. There's just too much else going on. So I do think you might have some funny, wacky scenarios with smaller stocks if they decide to target one of those kind of value stocks. The other thing is, if you look at the S&P 500, what we try to remind people is like, you know, companies go in and out of it all the time. Like they're, you know, Tesla got added, but why? Well, because Active bid it up. It only had about 7% passive ownership for a long time. So Active is the reason Tesla's in the S&P. And then you have Macy's getting kicked out of the S&P. Why? Well, Active hates Macy's. So I would say that the passive is in the back seat, and it's following what active does. Now, wait, um, but how, how, how much of the thematic, just, because at the end of the day, you do have some rules-based thematic that we're probably owning Tesla, and that's also back to the momentum narrative sort of thing, and, and, and that may have begun, and that becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy that then drives more flows into it. I, I don't know how big the thematic uh, uh, theme is. It's too uh, small. Uh, um, see, theme ETFs have like 180 billion, right? The Fidelity Contra Fund is bigger than that. 
Yeah. When you look at the Fidelities and T Rows, the amount of money that they had, that's why I'm trying to remind people of the arc. Like, yeah, she's got some big ownership in some in some mid-sized stocks, but um Fidelity Contra Fund is two whole arcs. I mean, we're talking, there's some whales out there. Nobody really, I don't know. I, I think it's because they've been around us so long. They're not new. So people just are used to these whales swimming around and they don't, I don't know. Um, that's why I think the dem- demographic shift of people selling out of those funds is bigger than people. I think that's being underrated. I think what's overrated is the ETF issue and also the uh, weak hands of index funds. I don't think they're as weak as people think. No, I think they will be a stable force for the next 10 years. But there's, That stability ends up, not not to too not to Minsky eyes too broadly here, but that mm-hmm. and and I think Dave Nadig kind of triggered this um, r- uh, memory for me, but or thought, but um, it's not so much that the um, the index funds are sort of weak hands or that they they aren't as influential, but the reality is every dollar that goes into index funds that are through sort of systematic retirement purchases, for example, and are not like tactical, they're just going to buy and they're going to huddle these index funds, right? Um, is basically taking a dollar from the float and like a, a, a cap weighted dollar from the float of these indices, because it's basically like insider ownership. It's like, it, these are, these are shares that will never be sold for any sort of active reason. In the same way that insider shares will never be sold, it's so you're taking, you're systematic, re, systematically removing float, float. Sure. from all of these companies, right? And I, well, I would just say, you know, like, like again, let's take Vanguard out of the equation and say that the next in the next month there was no Vanguard or no index funds. You'd have to buy Fidelity Magellan, and what are they buying? Um, they're buying the same exact stocks. Are, are is, is the Fidelity Magellan taking away float? Yeah, but I, I agree. But there would be at least some. There's there'd be some variation it's a human hand behind it. Yeah, right. And, this, and, fair. and there would be, and and there's there's some there's some legitimate, at least attempt, to deploy capital in 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 its most productive and efficient form. Right. Like, there's no attempt at the index level to do that. At it's least fully knee jerk. Yeah, the, the passive is fully a knee jerk. Just you know, money comes yeah. in, I buy. Passive meaning market cap weighted, which means yeah. that there is yeah. less of a float, and people at the margins are increasing it. There isn't an active manager yes. saying, "Okay, this is overweight. Maybe yeah. I should cut it's that a computer. off." Right? If big buy, yeah. right? Exactly. I got it. The yeah, I mean, this is uh, an issue we're going to live with. Um, I we think that it's. I just don't think it's clear and present yet. I think there's enough float. I think we see sell offs. Look at news, stocks go up and down with sell-offs. And ultimately, the reason the index owns it is because Active thought it was good. And the reason the index would not own it is Active thinks it sucks. In fact, we have this uh, list of stocks that have the least amount of index ownership. For people who say, oh, there's a passive bubble, I'm like, okay, you want to invest outside of it for when it bursts? Well, these stocks suck. And you know why? Because you know why no passive owns them? It's because Active hates them. So you'd but be- no, I, you'd I mean, be, there's a point when Active is so large that just by virtue of active needing to own them, it completely, it overwhelms the impact that, that sorry, passive needs to own them. It overwhelms the impact that active can have to modulate the price inefficiencies, right? So there's definitely, there's a point at which you cross the chasm and I'm not sure that there's, we've observed 
any good models that describe when that is, right? I mean, again, I, we look at each sell-off. We look at March. There were some stocks that went up and down, but there were some, you know, obviously the whole market went down um, if you look at an index. But in, in there, there was definitely some dispersion. Again, the rise and fall of stocks within an index, to me, it, as long as that keeps happening, I'm comfortable with it. And this is something I brought up on a podcast I did with Mike Green, which is that even if you think this is an issue, there's a lot of people, even if they were like, you know, you have a good point. Market structure could be a little tested here by all this passive. And that person's in passive funds. They're not selling. They are not going to take one for the team and go buy an active mutual fund at 1% because they know they're going to lose like $300,000 in retirement. So I tried to say to Mike, well, active should get more competitive then. Either they're going to do better because there's more passive ownership and more active opportunity, or they're going to lower fees to the point where they beat their benchmarks more often. But you can't lower fees beyond the operational burden of researching yeah, but these generating the alpha. gravy right? in like these companies is so ginormous. I mean, Fidelity makes $18 billion a year. That's like that's, that's four vanguards. That's the problem. And they have a fourth yeah. of the assets. Yeah. Well, so, I mean, we, we didn't talk about this earlier, but... but I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm not, that's fine. It's a capitalist society. I'm just saying that it's capitalism that's also the reason for this. People who have a choice, and even if they agree with your point, they're going to buy that cheap index fund that's four bips because that's their kids' retirement, you know, kids' uh, college, their retirement. And until you change those hearts and minds, it, this will, won't, it won't even matter. It's almost like an academic conversation. No, no, we, I, we, we totally agree. The, yeah. the, I think Mike's thesis is, and I, I think I'm, I'm aligned in, in, uh, to a great extent, is there's no mechanism through incentives where this dynamic can change. In fact, all the incentives are likely to accelerate this dynamic. But there is a point Probably, at yeah. which that the trend is is unsustainable, and there it's like it's Stein's law. If something can't go on forever, it will stop. <laughs> right? So the only and, thing I would, can I push back on that just a little bit, which is, and again, um, if you remove the Fed from this conversation, I, I think I would agree with you more. I think the the problem with this conversation is the Fed. Because index funds, I don't think they would be able to, their flows would be able to overwhelm that dog food scenario that we talked about. Totally. They might provide some bids a little bit, but they're not overwhelming that. So I think, in, you know, I think if you really start to unpeel the layers of the onion, you, you end up at the Fed and not letting the market just behave normally um, and let prices settle down. And that's why you end up having this beta vortex, I think, because it's just easier to buy the market or something close to it. And just, and also the demand side is also always let off the hook here. That's why I brought it back to the retiree person. And the other thing is people, advisors in particular, I try to challenge them on this. I'm like, you keep buying stuff. Like if they buy a value ETF, they'll tend to buy VTV, which is like not value. I mean, it's, it's almost looks it's like the 98% beta, 2% value. I mean, it's yeah. people watered down, right? Yeah. So, they keep buying watered down stuff when they should go and buy something that's different because when the market turns that they'll have that there, it's like a soccer field. You don't always go where the ball is. You want to have, but they don't do it. And so whether you're an institution or an advisor or retail, they keep following the ball and they keep buying things that look like beta. And I think the fed is the sort of, I don't know the word is like the, the fueling that or making it okay to do that. If you well, took the, well, it's certainly fueling more, it more shake I mean, up more often and you'd have assets spread out 
more, in my opinion. The career just risk of not not participating in the S and P 500 right now is astronomical, right? So that's why you see these people prefer. Oh yeah, I'm going to call it a value fund. I'm going to say that this line item is value, yes. even though they likely know that it's career pretty risk. much the S and P, right? They'll yeah. have a little bit of tracking error, but not too much. And so, you know, I think Natig is and, and Natig is the one that said or pushes back in the Mike Green conversation that everything is not passive. In fact, you said that true passive is only fifteen percent. I think, right? Thirty and the rest. Well, no, I, think I think he got to thirty-five passive, and then SMAs, then then plus. No, no. If you if indexed, indexed, index, index, which is what, 40. which but, is what. Yeah. Like market cap indexing is what yeah, what, so maybe half what drives this theory that Mike Green has. Right. But if not everything is market cap indexing and people are actually taking their positions down because they're actively managing it. And therefore, this cycle, this self-reinforcing cycle doesn't actually come to fruition, then it's a problem. But but having said that, we now have discussed the fact that a lot of these active managers are just doing the same thing as a market Closet cap index because they yeah. have because they be can't. So it's just. Yeah. I don't think it like all these models try to be like well, what extremes, you just said. right? There's something there's something in between, but I think we're leaning more towards everybody trying to be an index, but trying to be market cap because it's too scary so, not to for your career. I would call that the beta. We call that the beta vortex. That's the beta vortex, right? And yeah. and we think the Fed powers the beta vortex, and it's it's nobody's fault. Everybody's just acting. And you're right. The incentive system is you have to have it because if you don't have it, we look at this. If you're pure. And God bless the pure guys. We, we really try to give them a lot of love because they're walking a lonely road. But when the ball gets kicked to their side of the field, they crush. So that's why I, I sometimes say that like things like deep or QVAL could be the arcs of their day. Because when and if value comes back, they will be the shiny object in the room. But no one would have bought them ahead of time. They should. Instead of buying VTV, if you own SPY, you should, vote, you should buy the deep value one. That way, when a ball gets kicked there, you're good and you get that initial spark in a diversity. I tweeted about this today. I tweeted about this today. I think there's an opportunity here for the deep value guys to finally have their decade of I told you so. It's, I think it is. Eric's point is you want, if you're going to take an active bet, you want to actually take an active bet, not yeah, like take like an that concentrated bet. value bet. That's yeah, why you make, exactly. uh, you know, the Alpha Architects uh, value ETF and what is it, 40, 50 positions. You don't see that in, in the large BlackRock uh, value momentum ETFs. But the thing is that that's where the money goes. Um, and so you, it's the, the demand side of the equation is, is definitely overlooked a lot in these conversations. Um, but this is how consumers are shopping. I mean, they're buying, whether it's institutional advisor, they're going to buy stuff that looks like beta. And that's why I think when Mike try points out indexes, fine, maybe, maybe they're at the core of this, but I, I do think, I think it's a bigger beta vortex Okay. Okay. So now I'm tracking. I wasn't, I don't think mm -hmm. I was tracking what you were saying. But my, my point to him is that active is part of this. And ultimately if, and I think if you were able to somehow get the fed and rewind time, in fact, I used to think that the, in March, the kitchen sink day was like Superman one where he rewound time by flying around planet earth, like at a million miles an hour. Because it, it literally like the market went right back to where it was like it was a num it was like Superman. If you had not done that and you let the market get all jacked up and stuff disperse, I, I, I think some of this would have taken care of itself and been less of a worry. But because the Fed comes in and because it just means beta keeps working, um, there we go. But I sometimes defend passive in that they're a variable in this whole mix. 
but you've got the Fed, you've got advisors who refuse to buy pure stuff. Uh, there's a lot of people who are have their and you have that retiree I talked about who maybe they agree with you completely market structure, but when it comes to their kids' ed- uh, educational fund, they're going to go cheap beta. And and when like well, I said, the, when the, the Fed is the Fed is fully aware of the wealth effect. They can't allow spending to dry up, and therefore they need to make sure that the what people are using as expenditures, which is boring against their mortgage, boring against their stock, or using their actual stocks to survive in retirement, you can't have that go down. I mean, what was crazy about that that V recovery, that vortex? I like that the beta vortex. Is that what you call it? The beta vortex. Yeah. Remember when we were when when we had the um, what, what did we call our podcast? Where we were like, where is the market going to go? This is like the, the pandemic portfolio. The pandemic portfolio, right? We don't know, right? That's we don't. And, the, and we're like, let's let's create some narratives. And and in the narrative for a V recovery, <laughs> the narrative for a V recovery is like, what if they come up with a vaccine tomorrow? What if like COVID goes away? What if everything gets better? We are going to see a VIX recovery. We were dead wrong about the narrative. We saw VIX recovery and everything just got worse, right? By the way, so create that. That is how. how let's much, create how a narrative. You know the Fed has that. Have you ever heard that term conversational alpha? This is what the theme guys talk about with advisors. They're like, our, you know, our theme ETF, it gives you conversation alpha. So he's like, it's tax alpha. This is like, because you can on. talk to the client. Like, they hey. say this out loud? Hold on, stop. Drill, <laughs> yeah. drill into this for me, Eric. Just go right down the rabbit hole in this conversational alpha. What do you, what do you mean by that? Selling so conversation alpha is like, advisors are always looking at ways to like, get more in, in, engaged with their clients, right? So there's tax alpha because it's like, okay, I have these Vanguard funds here, but what are you doing different? Because I could go do that on my own. So it's all about like, you know, making more value. Protecting the 1%. Yes. So conversation alpha is this, you know, uh, and somebody, I think Global X trademarked the term actually. And it's like things you can talk about with your client. Like, hey, there's this huge trend in cybersecurity. I and they give you the numbers so you can discuss it with them. The fundamentals are here, da, 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 and it's conversation alpha. I know. This is to, to tell you guys. No, this like, is very the podcast now. So can we end the podcast like, now? Yeah, yeah. We, we, we see I know. this I'm sorry. The, I'm, the I didn't make it up. I'm just the messenger. It's brilliant. That's <laughs> well, we love that on the message board. Well. Dave Natick and uh, Brian Portnoy are going crazy with this. Uh... Well, the, well, the problem is it's like the truth is terrifying here yeah, right? like yeah, we, yeah. we all know like, it's a lot uglier a, than we want to admit gartman did the same thing in the early 2000s or mid 2000s mm-hmm. right like everyone subscribed to the gartman letter and then gartman informed all the conversations that that advisors have with clients and and it's really it's compelling storytelling right and um it's absolutely conversation alpha but i do think that there is there's this weird tension because you guys are i can tell you guys are just like your minds are blown. You don't even. <laughs> I just love that there's I, I, a. Tr- no. I, I love that somebody TM'd this. Like, yeah. is there no? No, no, no. It's not like it's a world? meme that naturally occurred. There, the marketing team was like, "I got it. <laughs> I got it." It's, but this is only for advisors. This this conversational alpha can never leak to the to the end client. But and that's why they're growing at sixty percent on average per year, man. That that's what drives flows. This is what you're conversational up alpha. I hear you. No, no, I love it. I think it's great. Well, you know, BlackRock <laughs> hired the chief marketing officer from BuzzFeed. So the, the big guys are they're well aware. You got to sort of. Okay, well, we need, we know, let's, who, we're going to hire another quant next week. 
Now we know we need that's we got to change our strategy. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Brian Portnoy just just Brian, his IP attorney. He, the, here you guy, he's the guy who's getting ahead of the the trend here. That's right. <laughs> My God. Okay. Uh, well, I really that's... think uh, Eric's point earlier about uh, the conversation, the the, the the problem with this conversation is all about the Fed. I mean, I think that's ninety nine uh, of a hundred answers to all of investment and finance questions today. It's Fed bashing, and and I think what Rodrigo was saying about the wealth effect is a real, uh, a real problem because it's become the the S and P is now the savings vehicle for the average American, and so they have no exit. They, they're they're cornered, yeah. and all they can do is keep doubling down and keep doubling down, which is why eventually the printing press is going to get taken away from them either through inflation. And here we are blah, back on the blah, macro. Blah, 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 blah. Well, blah. it could go on for a lot longer, <laughs> it's, for it's sure. Gonna, but we are going to die before this ends. I don't know. You possibly. Guys, you, it's quite possible. We yeah. might have blips here and there, but no, this ain't happening. Well, Wait, hold on a second. What is aspirational utility? Eric, have you heard of this one? No, but that that seems oh from the same yeah, brain. I don't know. Vixology. It's right up there. Need Vixologist on here to correct Ken, Ken Hebner and and tell us what comfort, comfort, uh, aspirational utility <laughs> is. Anyhow, but like yeah. the the point you just made about the retirement, um, th this is a good point Mike Green makes, and I I never thought of it fully that way, but treating the stock market like the retirement of America, it does make it a much different scenario for the Fed. So that's where you get, I think, more empathy for the Fed. But, the wealth effect, right? The 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 wheels of the economy come to a grind yeah. if everyone feels poor. The no, problem is you, there's only a, half of, half of people are in the stock market, so you're you're purposely rewarding only half the people. So you could argue on a bigger picture that that's not the best way to spend money. Let the stock market work itself out. It will give you ten percent a year if you could hang in there. You should pay your dues with the risk, right? And then let's give the money to uh, the economy in some other way. Which is I why think, fiscal is coming up as yeah, a well, that's prominent the tool. Fiscal going, so the Fed acted, and I, it's very complicated, but yeah. all of this, I think, affects the passive conversation, and it's all like we woven together, and it's hard to undo one of them. It's a multidimensional it, problem. Yeah. It, it is very hard to untangle. Well, it is. No, I like the, the, uh, the idea Natig says here that it's it, as in the social safety net. Uh, uh, sorry, they're outsourcing the social safety net to the S&P. I, I kind of I tend to agree right like what they should do every American will probably appreciate this is they should go and, and confiscate like Peru is doing they should confiscate all qualified accounts put it put it take it in for the government then spend it all because they'll just have to they'll just write a check at the end of the year they don't have to actually invest anything and then the wealth effect doesn't matter they just need to pay a certain check that they can devalue by inflation that's the solution here gentlemen this is why nobody no other country runs it this way. What is this qualified account wow, nonsense? A moment of silence for Rodrigo's capitalist, libertarian roots. It's what's happening man. to my country right now, man. <laughs> remember, we talk about the superannuation Dude, funds that are independent. Like They're all being taken over. For your for, for the death of your libertarian roots, man. I, I love it, but it's. I, I just I, see it. They're only out. The, uh, jump the shark. There's that, that uh, Sanford Bernstein argument like um, passive is worse than Marxism. That's a whole nother level of like craziness, in my opinion, I in that, that they, the passive only owns a section of the market. We, we, we've established that. But also uh, your example of Peru, right, taking all the money and then just distributing it. The, the, what, what you do get in the stock market is the innovation of America. And I think that will, will never go away. It's just a matter of how much that gets 
I guess, I don't know, watered down by just fed. Well, there it is. We got the, we got the definition of, uh, what's it called again? Uh, Aspirational utility is the, it describes venture capital, private equity, ARC and, and other shiny objects. The idea of Tesla is worth this much because we are going to solve the the, the problems of the world energy problem of the world i don't yeah, think yeah. that's what, quite what what is implied there i uh, think what is implied think, is that every american has the opportunity to aspire to e- be elon musk right it's not like at the aspiration of the commons it's like the aspiration of the individual in order to be able to you know to take on that. Are you equating that to the pursuit of happiness? No, no, no. Is that, it's the, is it's exactly what Tesla has. The pursuit has. of happiness? Uh, in, in yeah, that, dreaming uh, of rich. Exactly. Portnoy, Portnoy nailed it as usual, distilled it yeah. to its true, um, you know, features Maybe. here. Right. So I don't think let's not attribute everything to the. the well, let's give the let's give my thing another comments. name. I'm sure there's something I can sell to the advisors. <laughs> Somebody, somebody in the chat, come up with some, come up with something. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Well, you, you actually made me think of it when you said, "What were you saying? We were discussing building a narrative." Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you're you're in the. It sounds like you're in the ballpark. I think you're, you're not that far away from conversational alpha when you say that, right? Oh, totally. But no, th- th- this is what we struggle with as quants all the time, right? Like, because the narrative of quant is the history of relationships between an X variable and a Y variable, which is really not very exciting, right? Whereas the narrative of, of thematic is, you know, I really think solar is going to dominate because the cost of cells, re- the, the, the energy rooted cost of cells relative to the carbon equivalent is accelerating and it will cross over the carbon equivalent by 2023. And at that point, I think it's more dramatic Adam. It's about saving the world. It's about, there's too much pollution. If we don't move to clean energy, the world is doomed. We all have to go in this together. It's like the game mentality worldwide. Taking all the uranium. yeah. Right. Well, yeah. Well, look, like, did you guys hear the, the O'Shaughnessy podcast with um, with Jeremy, Jeremy Grantham? Grantham? The yeah. best 15 minutes for the last 15 minutes when he asked him, what are you excited about? And you hear these stories? The stories about the say? battery that they can charge in two, like in, in 10 minutes and, and last twice as long that are half the size. The plants that can sequester nitrogen from the air and and you know double the amount that you can use for fertilization the carbon credits and the secretary and indeed he talks about um uh clean energy as uh nuclear power plants and doing it better right so the stories were so captivating i mean even us as quants are not sitting there talking about the skew factor all day we're talking about bitcoin right so it's just it i get it i chose the wrong career well, the other thing on, on that is uh, it used to be a portfolio manager would be responsible of keeping up with these themes. Okay, there's a new thing going on with nuclear energy. Let me – okay, I'll add a little to that. This is just essentially outsourcing it to people so they can make up their own mind. of. But they're all driven. There is fundamental stories in these themes typically. They're not – if you look at their fact sheet it, or if you listen to one of them talk about themes, it sounds like a portfolio manager on Bloomberg TV talking about – a specific area, even the millennial ETF, which I was like, oh, this is ridiculous. But all it does, it's not a bad idea. It's like, let's invest in stocks that have 
over 50% of their customer base is millennials. Well, millennials are pretty tip of the spear when it comes to like new tech. It's not a bad way to sort of invest in the focus group of the early adopters of the consumer world. And it's done pretty well. But ultimately, again, a lot of this is rooted in growth. But I think the themes essentially outsource the active management to the people as opposed to the manager doing it. But what he was talking about reminds me, he almost probably just gave out three or four theme ETF ideas in that conversation. So they just take that idea and turn it into a whole fund. But so the, it's not, the challenge is that the themes themselves, while interesting, if you're not anchoring them to the price you're paying for the companies that are are channeling those themes, then you're not investing your, you know, uh, we all know that the most exciting themes are typically the most, are very highly priced. And often they're like priced well above their intrinsic value. And so th there's a reason why growth now, I mean, you know, growth underperforms value is a nice um, trope, except that actually hasn't been true for 30 years. But, but you know, th there's a reason why everyone sort of says, if you're excited about an idea, it's probably not a good investment because you're not the only ones who's excited and excitement leads to higher valuations and higher valuations leads to lower expected returns, right? So you don't want to get, we're not, we're in a narrative driven market right now where the story accelerates and amplifies the, the return, but and there's a meaning everything else. to that. Do you remember, you know, I was sure. thinking about like the idea of narrative and themes uh, and how indeed value was, you know, terrible by 98, 99 when the, when the story was the internet, right? Value was taken out to the woodshed and nobody wanted anything. And of course it finally came when growth crashed, value crushed it. But I, I don't recall anybody getting too excited about value. I do recall people getting excited about the BRICS, right? Brazil, Russia, yeah. India, China, the next story, the decoupling of the US to the rest of the world. Like value doesn't even get a no, day in value, the sun from a narrative perspective when it's doing well, no, right? but it's overshadowed is, by the next exciting theme. It's the it's next so momentum is correlated with the performance of X U S versus U S right. Sure. Like U S yeah. is basically a growth market. X U S is a value market. Mm -hmm. So taking a position in emerging an EFI relative to U S is a proxy value play. I don't know if it was that or if it was like, the inflationary aspect of BRIC countries and commodities. Was China the opening up to the world, binging on commodities and yeah. the emerging markets. It was a were, completely were different theme. theme from Dude, I bought into that theme too. I'm just saying that the, <laughs> the value, value I lived in Brazil. correlates with EFI and emerging. Um, so it all ends up being sort of thematically analogous. Sure. So it's, I'll know, buy that. I'll buy that. That's okay. You know, um, they're playing with the names a lot. And like I said, there's a airlines, hotels, and cruise ships ETF. That's an interesting e ETF? possible. Yeah. It's all in one name. It's uh, well, it's the stuff. It's kind of a reopening trade also, you know, when the, everybody goes and starts partying again, but it's possible they start messing with the names of value and you might find theme ETFs, you know, things that suck or, you know, West will refer to his own ETF as like dirtball stocks. It's possible that sink. Could... <laughs> it, I like. I mean, it works, and people trust a little reverse marketing sometimes or reverse psychology. It's like at least you're being honest. I'll buy that. 
or like bargain basement or something, it's possible value gets renamed in the next turnaround by all of the conversational alpha marketing people that have really popped up since this growth run. So they have yet to really try to relabel value, but I'm with you. The returns though were very nice for value. I mean, we, we were, I was marveling at small cap value was up a ton in the 2000s and the S&P was flat. And then if you go from the 2000 to today, small cap value is still winning. That's how amazing that was and how much a downturn hurt the S&P. 2000, right? Yeah. Yeah. And so when, when and if value comes back, it will be, the returns will be sexy. Whether it even needs a label, I'm not sure. It will just be you the know, shiny object in the room. That's interesting. I, I have an idea for an ETF company. Um, you launch a single product, a single ETF, and you call it whatever the theme is. Let's say in the beginning of the COVID, you, call it, you call it vaccine or something, right? And you and your theme is just vaccine. And then you, but it's going to be like my favorite type of, of Netflix shows. I hate the Netflix shows that go on for 10 seasons that should have ended in season two, right? Right. You don't want vaccine to last for 10 years, right? You want vaccine to last for about 18 right. months from the moment it came up. And then when it's over, you say, by the way, I'm going to change the ticker and the theme. You kind of redo the process, the prospectus, and then you do, I don't know, whatever the next theme is going to be 18 months from now, inflation or, you know, brick. You know, that, you, just, you just literally say, this is your chameleon ETF, and I'm just going to, yeah. I'm going to theme the crap out of it. I think, I, I think that's going to be my next yeah, exactly. I mean, uh, and plus, once it starts humming, people in it won't care as long as it's up. And sometimes they forget they bought it. We do find that when a theme ETF has a run, like the shiny object moment, let's say it gets a billion, and then it, it goes down a lot. I don't know. A third of the assets will stay, at least. Sometimes that's half the days. universal truth, dude. Like if you can, yeah. if you can collect the assets in the beginning, then yeah. you're set because just a third of them will just forget they ever owned it because <laughs> they don't want to actually look at their performance. Or oh, they don't like, want to crystallize their losses. Yeah, blind. They don't want to crystallize their losses. Yeah, taxes yeah. too. Oh yeah, sure. But uh, yeah, just just ignoring it is a really good, a really good strategy for a UN. But yeah, I mean, sometimes I'll look at some of these theme ETFs and I'm like, I cannot believe that thing has 500 million now. Um, you know, like they. They really are collecting assets. Um, so yeah, we're, we just wrote a bit looking at uh, this week, looking at how themes could be bigger than all gig sectors combined. Um, it, it, it could shake out over a growth sell-off, but what the themes also do is besides stealing a little of the quant thunder is they are sort of finding this real hole in the sectors. The sectors are, it's, companies are too, they go across too many the- sectors now. And so themes have, I think, taken some of the sector. They've stolen some of that thunder too. Mm-hmm. So I think in a way there's just this, they're disrupting a couple of systems that were embedded that weren't able to capture this stuff as well. And because they can go across the lines. But right now the theme ETFs have 180 billion. That's bigger than any sector. Tech has 150 billion. And Styles? and the, how big are styles? Because at the end of the day, it just seems like themes are the closet uh, styles and momentum. And, and we should re- relabel momentum as a factor to narrative or something. So themes, momentum is so underserved to the res- the academic community respect to the assets. I've never seen a bigger ratio with momentum. Now, growth is big. And I think growth probably steals some momentum assets. Growth has $200 billion, Value has $200 billion. 
And then there's multi-factor has about a hundred billion and then low vol might be 50. And then momentum, I, I, I want to say it's, it's all MTUM, by the way. It's like largely. Where does quality rank there? Um, quality is probably going to be, I'm going to guess 70 billion. I mean, value and growth, it's still that legacy from, you know, the nineties carrying yeah, over. Star style boxes. Huh? Yeah. I mean, that meant a lot, but, um, I mean, low vol and dividend strategies. Or, by you guys think dividends a factor, or is that like just? <laughs> Dude, don't even no, don't even go there. Okay, how about low vol? Is that a true factor, or is that lame? I, min vol is a portfolio construction technique that seems to have merit. Low vol <laughs> is a concentrated sector bet in extremely low vol <laughs> sectors. But so low vol isn't a factor. No. So what's the? We say value momentum. Size, those yeah. three we all agree. What about yeah. quality? What is like the ask 10 quants yeah. and you'll get 10 definitions it's of quality? It's so subjective, so, and I think it just is used as a cloaking mechanism for people to just own what's in vogue and not call it narrative or thematic. Well, where would you say dividend when we have, we have dividend ETFs? What factor loading would you say they are? Like, what, 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 what are they stealing from? Well, it's a diluted value factor. But it's just it, it's people Defensive. that don't understand Modigliani and Miller. Like, if you understand that that you should be agnostic about the way that companies distribute their cash flows, then exactly. It's and it, like it really is a capital structure decision and not a anything to do with um, expected returns. Um, yeah, so, that, so dividends so, is not a thing. Yeah, um, we we have them in smart beta. We're very liberal with the tent. But I agree with you. When we have quants on, they'll definitely dividends don't get much respect. I mean, once in a while, if an MSCI person gets up at a conference, they will include dividend as the sixth factor they're looking at. But normally, it's just the five. But they do include low vol typically. But then when you talk to the real PhD type quants, they will just give you the three typically. And then quality, they like you said, they might be like, eh, you know, and then that's it. Um, but those the, the one momentum of all we just talked about, all of them are healthy. Except momentum and, qu- and quality, only twenty one, twenty eight billion, um, and that's and dividends have two hundred twenty five, and you just said they're not really real. So I think that's also speaks to your, um, you know, things that come out that have a label that people can identify with. But does it just see that dividend doesn't have more? I remember like the uh, the dividend achievers index is so intuitive for the average retail investor, right? And, well, this is only ETFs. The mutual funds probably have uh, probably mm-hmm. a lot more, um, but ETF wise, Canadian, Canadian ETF. That's three percent of assets. It's pretty good. I mean, to put that in comparison, like ESG has seventy billion, so dividends have three times what ESG has. I mean, it's two twenty five. Especially in the ETF world, it's very hard to get assets there. So 225 to me, I, I would call respectable. Um, and then and then we have smart beta. Do you believe factors exist in fixed income? Yeah, absolutely. There's definitely systematic factors. You guys and, and offer any strategies? Fixed like income is the is the ultimate arbitrage because the the construction of the benchmark is so flawed, right? Like who who in their right mind would construct an index based on the amount of debt outstanding? Like, Every advisor, it, yeah, no, I hear you, but like it just is so silly when yeah, you see. Yeah, I mean, it the ag is big. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I remember when first book Josh Brown said the ag is total bullshit. It was made up by a guy who tried to sell bonds, and it's amazing how the stories of some of these things that grow so big are like 
born in these really quirky stories and just it gets a universe around it. And then it's like, oh, well, he's doing it. I'll do it. It's like buying miners based on the total square footage of tailing ponds or something. Like, what is your total environmental footprint? <laughs> you know, like it's the strangest construction you could you could contrive, and yet this like eighty percent of total global credit in, in fixed income is is oriented in this direction. So I mean, yeah, it's well, a great opportunity I- to outperform. Yeah, that's why bond managers, if they chose the right asset class, I mean, we always talk about how they were smart to pick that benchmark. That said, in March, the only 5% of them or 10% of them beat the ag. When the ag, ag is sucks until it doesn't. Because uh, when treasuries are a safe haven, it, the ag will crush a lot of these active funds. They've cheated or, I mean, honestly, if the ag doesn't have high yield international, is it really fair that the active fund can use those? No. And, but they do. But they do. And so that's, and this is, and this is interesting to us because fixed income smart beta only has 40 billion total. And some of those funds are pretty good. Like at wisdom tree, they got ones that's like ag, but they like work in some extra yield there, or they'll do one that's like risk weighted instead of which you guys can identify with as opposed to just weighted by a market cap. And they do pretty well for the commodity ETFs, right? I mean, there's just like, Otherwise, you're all what's been out there. Don't give Jeremy Schwartz too much credit here. Just relax. Just Aggie. (laughs) Aggie. He likes Aggie's pretty big. You want to know how big Aggie is? What would you guess? Assets. Oh, man. I don't even want to know. Do I want to know? (laughs) My ego is going to get hurt. Okay. No, no. All right. Tell me. Tell us in. Okay. Would you guess or no? No. Okay. 1.1 billion, which is respectable. It's 12 bits, though. If you're under 20, you got a tailwind going. Um, yeah, it, you know, and it's the ag, which they're comfortable in that world. It's not taking any extra credit risk, but, um, we think if there's a huge sell-off like March, but it goes on for six months, the beat rate of bond managers will go down so dramatically that <clears throat> it should open the door to the quant world more because people are going to, it's going to be vi- very clear that, well, why are they all underperforming? Well, they, cause they went into high yield international, which the index doesn't hold. And that's why the index is beating everybody. Cause it never did that. And it's going to look, the conservatism will look good. That said, they're active. They might be able to go right into it and navigate it quicker. But this is an interesting phenomenon and brings us back to the whole conversation with everything in the Fed. It is interesting that bonds and stocks have gone up so much together for so long. The everything up thing also, like that worries me as well. Because sometimes you have these uh, sell-offs where everything goes down. And like, like, like well, I remember it was 2018. Last couple of days, right? Only cash was positive. That's well, this it. is what this is where I get confused when we talk about active. Um, our our version of active is being able to short stuff, but that's been gone for decades, right? Because you just how do you survive in this is world? It even legal you can't to short, short. I don't. I don't even know. I think it will <laughs> be. It's a, you definitely it get should canceled. be. I mean, it you, should be. Don't even I, I think I yeah. lose your job. Yeah, you're but I mean, is there like the fact that we talk about active as if it's just picking long only stocks is just appalling at this point. And everybody talks about it that way. But active is supposed to be tactical. Go to zero. Go short. You know that's active. And I think when. When the tide goes out, we're going to recognize that, oh, we should have had more active options out there. And uh, hopefully, well, you know, hopefully. Well, let let be me say more. one thing on that, which is that there's a lot of, like, there's this uh, uh, provider named I- AIEQ or something, um, BTAL, uh, CHEP, and they do long, short quant yes. strategies. Yep. They do it the real way. I mean, this is even more hardcore than Wes. 
but like nobody cares. But when there's a sell-off, BTAL will will be the top of the charts because they got the short position. And that's why a long sell-off, I think, will shift money around where this whole passive blob thing will regulate a little on its own. Because there'll be these things over here that have short positions or deep value, which will start to outperform the indexes potentially, and you'll see money shift over to them. Um, but we, again, we talk about this idea of we have these little case studies of when there's a sell-off and the stuff that is true and pure shines. The problem is there's the sell-off never gets to last long enough or mm-hmm. to have a regime change. Yeah, nobody's man, been naked I never in a while. knew you were such a Fed hater, dude. There's a brotherhood, man. We could like yeah, you need to come up. You need to come up and visit clubs. Us. I wouldn't say oh, yeah, t-shirts. Apparently, I'm I'm not for you and your kids. I'm like I'm I'm not. I empathize with their position, though. I mean, you're gonna let everything so like it's almost like everything's too big to fail. I mean, it's almost like somebody said once the buy side now is too big to fail. And yeah. they're going to have to bail out PIMCO and Fidelity. And like, just seems like, because what are they going to let, because that's where all the retirement money is. Yeah. The Fed's going to fail the moment I give up on my shorts and, and my active assets. The moment like Resolve Asset Managers, like, ah, that's it. We're done. Let's just throw in the towel. That's going to be 500 long with a slight tilt. Well, you know that guy that's in Philly where I live, Ted Orenson, he just, he was done. He was like, he had a value shop and he's, he is starting something new, but he just closed up. He's like this. He goes, because even if, it comes ripping back. He was like, the track record will still suck. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> he did the forward prognosis and said, there's just no escape. It is pretty existential. It, it's, it's, uh, it's not funny. I mean, that's a, that's a dark place to have to be from, but that's, I, I would blame the fed if I was in hit. Like to me, I would, I would point the finger at the fed in that case because it never let the sell-off happen enough where you could have the glamour stock sell off and then value looks good. And they never let that play out. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, look, we, we, it's, it, there's an hour, 45 minutes. I've now realized that we're kindred spirits and you know, until we can physically hug. Can you give me one of those? I have a 10 year old and a four year old. So can you hook me up at the, it's he's got a, he's got all the sizes, man. Absolutely. He's got all the sizes. I've, I've also got the <laughs> I am John Galt hookup too. If you like those, listen, shirts. man, he'll so, be the envy of the of the flag football team. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. No doubt. Like, who's the Fed? What are you talking about, dude? Yeah, yeah. I mean, he lives in South Philly. You want to talk about it? Some privileged, uh, well, some privileged you know wear for your children when you're wearing true. like a if Fed you put ETF on a shirt. People think it's like uh, uh, T-Mobile's eliminate transfer fees. Everyone interprets it in, you know, the winning scenario for their context, right? Yeah, that's perfect. <laughs> Eric, honestly, this has been really fun. This is one of my, my, my favorite riffs, a true I riffing agree. back and forth. Totally. Yeah, it's yeah, a lot of fun. Wide ranging. Always funny. enjoy our chats, man. Yeah. Yeah. Likewise, hopefully uh, we'll be hiking next time we get, or you yeah, know, we can. Hopefully. If any luck, we can also chat over so cocktails. But Pennsylvania, also fun. Pennsylvania in August. That's I want to come down there and I want to go on a fishing trip. Dude, um, dude, we're gonna go fishing. We're gonna go. Uh, yeah. we're gonna Adam, fish Adam just fished a Wahoo last week. You missed it. We chatted about that. Yeah, I mean, I, I went down there uh, about three years ago um, because there's a there's enough terminals and a lot of the wealth managers down there will use ETFs. In the U.S., so there was um, enough for a whole day or two of meetings, 
And um, it was funny walking around the streets. I'm like, how many trillions of dollars am I around right now? Because <laughs> you know, like all the U.S. corporations have like all this money sitting there, and you're just like, you can almost feel it. It's like I'm, I'm just, this the, building the probably has a city of, of zeros and ones totally. emanating, emanating <laughs> from the computer centers. Absolutely, Indeed. but anyway, thank you for, uh, for inviting me on. It was uh, it was fun. Where are you going for dinner? We're going to a place called Leviet. It's a like Americanized Vietnamese restaurant um, oh, right with a couple with kids. So we have a babysitter. So it's uh, I haven't, we haven't been out in a while, to be honest. And we have certainly haven't been on a double date kind of hangout situation probably since the pandemic. We've gone out for steak dinner a couple times, like just the two of us. But this is this is going to be fun. And I've had I'm, my I'm going out. I'm going out dancing with Corey Hofstein tonight. Believe it or not, it's just Rodrigo really? and Corey Hofstein. No. <laughs> No, okay, hold on a second. Where are you physically? You're in LA. We're in the, we're in the Cayman Islands. He just moved down. He's here in Cayman right now. No, he is in Cayman. Yeah, he get, he oh, came into the concierge program. Yeah, he came in last week. Two weeks of quarantine. Him and his wife taking him out dancing with my wife. I got babysitters. I I started drinking two hours ago, so I'm gonna I'm gonna keep it going. Oh, you're gonna be in rare. It's gonna form. be a ton of fun. Yeah, there's yeah. no there's just before anybody judges me about dancing. There's absolutely zero COVID here. There's no mask wearing. They, this is a tiny island that they locked down. So there's you should live cast I, it on Twitter. So there we is can all, Rodrigo there can is dance too. Let's be absolutely like this guy can zero absolutely COVID dance. people. Please don't judge. We are gonna go and get sweaty and dance with a bunch of people. It's gonna be fantastic. That sounds so good, man. And I'll like, take all the pictures of Corey dancing just to see. I can't even imagine it, but. Uh, his wife said buggy nights and said that Corey was coming. And I said, I'm in and I'm bringing two cameras. <laughs> and is this, are you going for like a, a straight club with like techno or more of like a bar where they play like, you know, rock songs and you dance? No, no, this is a legit like lights. It's, uh, it's boogie night theme. So 60s, 70s and 80s. Okay. Okay. So <laughs> it's, it's not a massive draw. Massive it's not like draw. jungle house or something. Okay. No, it's literally no. like my, my 20s. At university, yeah. like you're, I try to get Butler to come, but he he's uh, he apparently says I, he's not willing to get that drunk. Get tonight. drunk enough at, at this age to function over the weekend with my family to have fun on a Friday night dancing to Pearl Jam. <laughs> Pearl Jam, that's what your mind went to. Let me disabuse you. There will be no Pearl Jam. It's it boogie. Saw, is it like I like, saw the sign? Like, what, boogie, what is it? Like, woogie, woogie, woogie. I don't know anything with it. Staying alive. Staying alive. Uh, uh, <laughs> yes. They're gonna play all the stuff that makes you of think, like of like, it's eight in the morning and I haven't and I need to go to sleep. <laughs> you know, kind of like like those one in the morning that you have for three hours too long. It's gonna be fantastic. Place. You can still change your mind. You've already started with me. We started together. I've already killed like a good quarter of this bottle of same uh, here, man. Zacapa. I started with a good quarter of a bottle. That was my plan all along. All right. I'll come pick you up at uh, seven. Seven a.m. I'll be. I'm in. <laughs> <laughs> Enjoy your Vietnamese, Eric. Thank you so much yes, for Eric, all the great energy and insight. This has been a lot of fun. Enjoy the yeah, dance. Like, thanks, guys. Of pictures, very. I, it's fun talking this. And it's fun like going off the ETF reservation a little bit. Um, but yeah, and um, yeah, keep in touch, and I'll you know hopefully whenever you guys are in, you guys come to Philly at all. Well, we come to March. We'll, at the we'll come to the March, yeah. And, you the know, March we, we of the come following. for other reasons too. That's right. That's a Philly-ish event, yeah. yeah. So I'll probably see you there. Yeah. Okay. Although I got ribbed for staying at the hotel. Well deserved. <laughs> That's right. No, Jeremy Adam sure. got the couch last time, didn't he? Me, me and Jeremy stayed at the hotel, and uh, 
Yeah, we never heard the end of it, but it was. I, I think it was worth it. I'm a late. Did the big bear? Did you? Did the big bear hug you? <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> oh, oh, oh. All right. Anyway, Love all right, guys. You. Love you guys. Yeah. Yep. Have a good weekend. Enjoy See ya. The bees. Thank you for listening to the Gestalt University podcast. You will find all the information we highlighted in this episode in the show notes at investresolve.com forward slash blog. You can also learn more about Resolve's approach to investing by going to our website and research blog at investresolve.com, where you will find over 200 articles that cover a wide array of important topics in the area of investing. We also encourage you to engage with the whole team on Twitter by searching the handle at investresolve and hitting the follow button. If you're enjoying the series, please take the time to share us with your friends through email, social media. And if you really learned something new and believe that our podcast would be helpful to others, we would be incredibly grateful if you could leave us a review on iTunes. Thanks again and see you next time.